pray for God's word to bless us. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us now as you have done in the past, but speak through your word and declare wonderful things to your people and help us to live it out. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I said, we're starting a new sermon series on the Ten Commandments, but this morning we're going to be looking at what's called the prologue or the introduction, you might say, of what God has to say before the Ten Commandments are spoken. You know, the Ten Commandments are not a very uh, hot topic in our everyday conversations and discussion. Of course, sometimes in the news there's uh, concern by some groups as to whether or not the Ten Commandments should be posted in public buildings and things of that nature, and maybe we talk about them then, but the Ten Commandments aren't the kind of topic that really thrill most people. They're not talked about at dinner parties, or can you imagine a group of high school students around their locker talking about the Seventh Commandment? It really doesn't work that way very much. And yet the psalmist of old in Psalm 119 says this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And he also says in that same psalm, With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. The psalmist loves the law of God, delights in the law of God, wants to talk about the law of God. Why is that? Well, in our culture, the law of God is viewed as restrictive. It's something that makes us unhappy, right? Christians are supposed to be unhappy, be sour, unpleasant, but that's not the case. In the Bible, it presents the happy person as the one who is living out the commandments of God. And so why is it that some people have found great delight in the law of God and others have not? I think we could agree with Philip Ryken in his book about the Ten Commandments when he says, whenever people have a low regard for God's law as they do in our culture, it is ultimately because they have a low regard for God. What is central to the law of God in the Ten Commandments is God Himself and a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, when we come to know God in faith through Jesus Christ, all of a sudden we love the things that He loves, we delight in the things that He delights in, and therefore we can say with the psalmist, I love your law. And so as we go through this particular series, that's really the hope. It's not just that we're informed in our minds as to what we're supposed to do, but more than anything else that we love it. Because it's what God takes pleasure in. And we want to take pleasure in the things that He does. Well, let me read here in Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to be. And we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 today. You'll find that on page 61 of your pew Bible. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's a movie that came out quite a few years ago and it opens with a scene on an airplane. There are two sets of people, one in first class, the other in economy class. And the man in first class has met this beautiful woman and he's talking to her he's charming her he's talking about his business successes on this particular trip that he's gone on life is wonderful for him and then there's the woman in the back in economy class who's sort of straining to look in between the crack of the uh, 
curtain there between first class and economy class and he's she's listening in and as she hears this conversation about how wonderful life is for this particular man she leans over to the person next to her and says it used to be that first class was a better seat now it's a better life we're all looking for the better life we're all looking for the blessed life commercials offer it don't they you buy their product, you'll have a better life. You see it on reality TV shows all the time. People seeking something better. They want to win a competition. They want to have fame. They want to have notoriety. They want to have validation and recognition. They're seeking after something better. We want better for our children. We want the blessed life for them. If you're a high school student or a college student, you're dreaming about the future and you're you're thinking wonderful things about the future and what life will have in store for you of what is ahead. And you're thinking about what kind of blessed life you'll have. But the question is, what is it? What is the blessed life? Well, there's only one person who can truly answer that question, and that's God. Because He's created life and He's created the blessed life. We're told here in the prologue, to the Ten Commandments, and God spoke all these words. God spoke these words. Now that's a profound statement. Very profound statement. In fact, if we were to look in Deuteronomy chapter 4, a restatement of the law, we're told in verse 5, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded, you, commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who will then, who will, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. In other words, what God is saying to the people of Israel is, because I've spoken to you, because I've declared the things that are good, because I've told you what the blessed life is, people all around you, nations all around you, will look at you and say, how wonderful is that nation that their God has spoken to them and told them what is good and what the blessed life is. Al Mohler in his book on the Ten Commandments asked the question, what if God had not spoken? What if God had not spoken? Imagine one day you wake up on a deserted island and all you can see is ocean around you there's a few palm trees on this small little scrap of land and you're wondering, how did I get here? Did I get captured by some secret agency and they brought me here and dropped me here? How did I get here? And why am I here? What is my purpose? What do they want with me? And what's going to happen to me anyway? You might say, life without a knowledge of the truth, life without knowledge of God, life without God speaking to us and declaring what's true is just like that. I can't answer those questions. How did I get here? Why am I here? What's going to happen to me in the end? But it's not just an academic question. It's one that we wrestle with. And without God speaking, we're left blind to figure out life and Friends, there's no app on your iPad to tell you the answers to the questions. There's that internal crisis of searching for the truth. And even if we don't give ourselves to really thinking about that, at least there's this crisis of trying to figure out 
What is the blessed life that I could live? What should I seek after? What will be good for me? See, all of our understanding of knowledge about this world and our lives is based on the fact that God has spoken. And He has spoken finally in the Lord Jesus Christ to reveal His will to us. What a privilege it is as Christians to know that God has spoken to us. And we can know the truth. There's lots of voices in our culture. but One of the things that we're told by the psalmist in Psalm 112 He says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. In other words, those who keep the commands, those who want to live out the law of God, those who want to live for his glory will experience the blessed life as much as possible in this fallen world. It's what the psalmist declared to us. It's what they have experienced themselves and the blessed life starts with a relationship with the God who has made us that's what the prologue here is all about God in a sense is speaking to his people to introduce himself to them I am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt otherwise the ten commandments might as well be rules that have just dropped out of the sky with no connection to God just random rules we all know what it's like to come across rules in life that don't make any sense. And we ask the question, who made this up? Who thought this was a good idea? God connects His law to Himself and says, this is who I am. And I'm telling you, if you want to live in relationship with Me, this is the way to enjoy life with Me and in My world. And so they define for us this blessed life. And what God does here is speak and reveal who He is. So let's ask this question first of all. Who is this God who gives the law? Who is this God? Well, it's the Lord your God, he says in verse 2. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. He says, I am the Lord. It is the covenant name for God, meaning Yahweh, or I am who I am. There's no other way for God to describe himself other than to say, I am who I am. I can't be reduced to one thing or five things or a million things. I'm an infinite number of things, infinitely. God says, I am who I am. I'm sovereign. I'm almighty. I'm eternal God. I need no one. I'm supreme in authority. I'm holy, he says. And he announces himself to his people that they might know that he is God. In other words, God has the authority to command our obedience And the law itself is a description of His own character of who He is. If we were to go through the Ten Commandments here this morning and look at each one of them, we would realize each one of them describes something about the nature and the character of God. So what that means is that when we sin, what we're saying and declaring to the world and to God is, I do not like you. I don't like that you're truthful. I don't like that you're faithful. I don't like that you preserve life and love it. So sin is a declaration that we do not like God, that He's unworthy of our praise, that we reject Him, that we despise Him. But you see, submitting to the law of God and listening to His Word means that we are willing to submit to life from His perspective. 
We're willing to see it from his perspective and say, you know what, God, you know what's best. This is the right way to go. This is the right thing to do. It may not be um, the way that I would have chosen, but it is the right way. My way is not the best way. You know, we can certainly get a level of pleasure from going our own way. We can end up with a marriage that by all accounts is faithful and good. We can have a job that satisfies us. We can have friends, a wonderful life, you might say. But it won't be the life that God intended. It won't be the blessed life that He has really for us until we say, God, You're bigger than me. You're bigger than me, and therefore you have the right to determine what is good. Notice here, He is the Lord your God. He wants a special relationship with His people. It's not simply that God stands on the heights of heaven and barks down orders to us, but that God has come into our midst in Jesus Christ. He's lived out this law perfectly. He's declared it to us, and He wants to live with us in fellowship and the way you live with God in fellowship is according to what He says is right in His law. Just like in your marriage or in your friendships, if you don't live in ways that the other person enjoys and demonstrates love and faithfulness, well, you just can't have a relationship with them. So God is in covenant with His people and He delights to be with us, to be our God. I think many people in our culture today, whether they will actually articulate these words or not, are hungering and thirsting for a great and awesome God. One who they can trust. One that they can entrust their lives to. One that they can say, He knows all. He knows better than me. I feel lost and alone in this world. And God says, I will be that God because I am the great and awesome God. I'm worthy of your praise. I'm worthy of your trust. If you will follow me. People have seen enough brokenness in their life and if they will just come to Him, He will bless them. And when we do that, it leads to blessing. But not, not only is God the Lord, but He's also the liberator. He says in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now you remember that God's people had been enslaved in Egypt for generations. They had been building bricks in the hot sun and then using those bricks to build whatever Pharaoh wanted. For generations, day after day, they had been enslaved in the hot sun with very little pleasure in life. And God says, I'm the one who brought you out of that slavery. I have liberated you. I have brought you into the land of freedom. And what He has done is done all of that in spite of the sin of the people of God. Remember how they grumbled against Him. They grumbled because they didn't think they had enough water. They didn't have enough food. They didn't have the right kind of food. They didn't have cucumbers anymore. And therefore, they grumbled against God. In other words, He is bringing them into a land of freedom in spite of all their grumbling and all their complaining. It's a work of sheer grace the grace of the gospel and the same is true for us sometimes we do not want to live in God's blessed life we don't li want to live according to his word and in spite of all that God continually shows grace to his people it's always grace 
And then obedience. Never obedience to earn grace. That's what we have in Jesus Christ, isn't it? Through the cross of Christ, He has forgiven us of our sins. He has kept the law for us. He has done everything necessary for our salvation. And then He says, now therefore obey Me. As My chosen people, as those who are dearly loved. God has brought us into freedom. We often don't think of the law as freedom. James speaks of it as the law of liberty. But from a biblical perspective, sin is bondage. Obedience to God is freedom. Sin is bondage and obedience to God is freedom. Law keeping is freedom. Why is that? Because it's what we were made for, what we were designed for, as I was telling the children. Just like as some have said, a a fish needs water, right? There's boundaries upon freedom. If a fish gets out of water, it's no longer free. Same with a bird in the air. Imagine a lion. He's out on the plain of Africa. He's free to hunt. He's free to do whatever he wills. He's the king. But you put some ice skates on him and put him in a hockey rink, it's a totally different story, isn't it? When God brought His people out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, when Christ freed His people from bondage to sin, He brought us into a world in which we were designed for. A relationship with the living God so that we can live out His commandments rather than be in the prison of sin. What were we designed for? To be like God in our character. To represent His beautiful character in the world. In other words, we are now free to tell the truth. Doesn't it feel like you're in bondage sometimes when maybe you're caught and you don't necessarily want to tell the truth because it will expose you. You're caught and you feel like you're in bondage. Jesus gives us the freedom to tell the truth. Jesus gives us the freedom to be faithful to our vows to our spouse. To no longer be in bondage to my own pleasure, my own desires, what I want for myself, but to be free to love somebody else. To be free from the love of money. To be generous. That's what He does as the great liberator. Not only that, but we need to recognize that there's freedom within the law itself. You know, Adam could eat from all the trees of the garden, couldn't he? Except for one. Now that's freedom, isn't it? You can have anything that you want except for this one tree. The same is true for us within the law. The law is summed up in these words, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. We have the freedom to be as creative as we want to be within the bounds of the law to love God and love our neighbor. The law is not restrictive. It actually tells us here's what life is. And within those bounds, he says, you have all the freedom you want. Figure out ways to love your neighbor as yourself. Be as creative as you possibly can. God's not restricting us. He's opening up a whole new world to us. The fact is we will not love the law until we first love God. When we learn to love God, when we see Him as great and awesome, when we learn that He has set us free in Jesus Christ and we grow to love Him, 
And that's when we want to live it out. There's another question. That's who is the giver of the law. Secondly, why does God give us the law? Well, scholars throughout the centuries have identified three different uses of the law. That is, the first is to lead us to Christ. You know, sometimes my kids will want to do things that I know they can't do. And sometimes, if, if I know it's not going to hurt them or somebody else, I might let them do it just so that they can see that they can't actually accomplish it. Small example would be wanting to open a brand new jar of pickles. Right? It's vacuum sealed. I can do it, Dad. Grab hold and they try and they try with all their might. And then finally they say, okay, you open it. That's a picture of what the law is. We try and we try to keep it. Try to honor God. And what He's showing us in the law is you actually can't do this. My character is too holy You cannot live out my commandments in your own strength. You cannot be perfect and righteous. But you need to be forgiven. And so the law is what points us and drives us to Jesus Christ. Donald Barnhouse, a famous pastor, preacher, gave a famous illustration. He said the law of God is like a mirror. Now the purpose of the mirror is to reveal that your face is dirty But the purpose of a um, mirror is not to wash your face. When you look in a mirror and find that your face is dirty, you do not then reach and take the mirror off the wall and attempt to rub it on your face as a cleansing agent. No, the purpose of the mirror is to drive you to water. By works of the law, no one will be justified. And so what the law does for us is drive us to Jesus Christ to take refuge in Him, to find in Him the hope of salvation. There's a second use here, and that's to restrain sin in the world. Michael Horton in his book on the Ten Commandments references another book that describes America back in the 1990s, but I think it's relevant today. He says... This book called The Day America Told the Truth, the writer writes, everyone is making up their own personal moral codes, their own Ten Commandments. Here are ten extraordinary commandments for the 1990s. These are real commandments, the rules that many people actually live by. Number one, I don't see the point of observing the Sabbath. There's no reason for me to go join with God's people and worship Him. 77% said. I will steal from those who won't really miss it. 74%. I will lie when it suits me so long as it doesn't cause any real damage. 64%. I will drink and drive if I feel I can handle it. I know my limit. 56%. I will cheat on my spouse. After all, given the chance, he or she will do the same. 53%. I will procrastinate at work and do absolutely nothing about one full day in every five. It's standard operating procedure, 50%. I will use recreational drugs, 41%. I will cheat on my taxes to a point, 30%. I will put my lover at risk of disease. I will sleep around a bit, but who doesn't? 31%. Technically, I may have committed date rape, but I know that she wanted it, 20% have been date raped. This is America in the 90s. Friends, it hasn't gotten any better. 
And yet the work of the law in part is to restrain evil in the world. I think in our country, maybe in the Western world, you might say, there is more of a focus upon the individual's rights over the individual's responsibilities. Generations and generations ago, there was far more emphasis on the responsibilities that every individual has to their country, to their neighbor, to their God, to their family and friends. Today, it's what's in it for me, my personal rights and what I get out of it. And the world definitely needs the law of God to saturate it, you might say, to restrain it from evil. Isn't it better to live in a world without school shootings, without date rape drugs, without teen pregnancy, without corporate thieves? Certainly better to live in a world without those things. I hear again and again people lament youth culture today. Some of you are part of youth culture today. I think every generation, probably since the time right after the fall, has said the word something to effect of the kids today. Those kids today. I mean, you can almost imagine cavemen standing around saying, the kids today, they're throwing rocks at T-Rex again. But what we probably ought to say is this. The parents today. The parents today. After all, we reap what we sow, don't we? And you see in our country, generation after generation after generation, where we have sowed the seeds of unbelief, and look what we're reaping. But I'll say this, the world does need the law of God as a restraint. Certainly the ways in which we vote ought to be informed by the law of God. If you're involved in making policies in your business, it ought to be informed by the law of God. Those things ought to be true. But what the world needs more than anything else is the gospel of grace. Because the law written on a piece of paper is not enough for what people need, but rather they need it written on the heart as we'll talk about in a few minutes. They need Jesus Christ. Well, the final use of the law is this. It's to guide the Christian. It's meant to be a guide. The summary of the law is love, isn't it? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's to be a roadmap. It's to be a compass. It's pointing us towards loving others. In other words, if love is the motivation, the law of God is the description of how we're supposed to love. And guidance in that area is something that we all need. We all need guidance as Christians. It's not as though once we become a Christian, all of a sudden we just know what to do in life. We have to learn. We have to study. We have to learn who God is. We desire purpose. We desire a place of significance in life. We want to know that what we're doing means something. And we're anxious about finding God's will for our lives. And we've said before that the Bible defines two different ways in which it speaks of God's will. One is His secret sovereign will. The other is His revealed will. Part of that is the Ten Commandments or the law of God. And we worry so much about finding His secret will of what we're supposed to do next of reading the signs and wondering, have I hit plan B instead of plan A? Have I missed the blessed life by making the wrong choice? And God says, really, the blessed life is found in this. It's been in obeying my commandments 
and knowing me and enjoying these things. In other words, he wants us to take such pleasure and enjoyment in obeying him that we say, that's my real purpose in life. Whether I work that job or this job over here. Oh, the real pleasure in life if you know Jesus Christ. The real pleasure is being able to say, Lord, I've tried my hardest to serve you because I love you. And we take pleasure in that. And the Word of God, the law of God is designed to guide the Christian life so that we enjoy God and take pleasure in Him. Friends, it's a privilege. It's a responsibility to teach our children the law of God because we want those kind of blessings for them. We want that life for them. We want to guide them. How often parents find themselves in a situation, particularly as our kids get older, where they ask us a question or we know something's going on in their life and we wonder, how can I help them? How can I guide them? How can I direct them? What does God's Word say? If we don't know the law of God, the last thing we'll be able to do is to guide our children toward the right path. So many people today that have no idea what the Ten Commandments are, and that's not just speaking of people in the world, it's speaking of people in the church too. Our forefathers took very seriously teaching their children how to honor the Lord, teaching their children about the greatness of God, the shorter catechism that is part of our standard of faith. What we're going to be working through in our affirmation of faith and worship. It defines for us what it looks like to apply and live out the Ten Commandments. You might teach those to your children. You might start with the children's catechism and work through what it says about the law of God so that they would know. So that when they get to the point in life where they have difficult decisions to make, They already know God has laid out for me the life of blessing and this is where it's found. Not only that, but we should show them our delight in the law itself. How we love to obey. We should tell them the story about Jesus. Because if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, the restatement of the law, God says whenever your son asks you about all these rules and statutes, you're to tell them about Me. Brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, who gave them freedom to live life as I have intended for them to live. That's what we're to do with our children. One last question, and I'll make it brief. How does God make it possible for us to obey? It was a great display of God's power on the mountain, wasn't there? There's fire and smoke. There's a great earthquake. The ground shook. But it was not enough to keep the people from sinning. God wrote the law on tablets of stone. It was not enough to keep the people from sinning. What you and I need and what God promised to His people to do one day and He has done in Jesus Christ is to write the law on the human heart. In other words, He would give us the desire to keep it. He would implant within us a deep love for Him so that by loving Him, we want to do what He has called us to do.
You know what it's like to plead with people to do a certain thing. And maybe people have pleaded with you and you just ignore it or they ignore it. That's the law written on stone, but the law written on the heart by God Himself is what enables us to keep it. Not perfectly, but evermore. And so it should be our desire to seek Jesus. To know Him. Because the further we get from Christ, the further we get from obedience. Yesterday, a number of us gathered together to play a game of tag football out at Jackson Park. There were people there from age 7 up to 70. No, age 7 to about 50, roughly. It was a fun game. There were rules that were stated beforehand. Here's what you can and can't do. And the rules were designed so that we could have fun. Imagine what it would be like if during that time people were getting angry, they're throwing the ball on the ground, they're cursing at each other, they're saying, no, I wasn't out, I was in. We would probably leave there that day miserable, not wanting to come back. As it is, we left with smiles on our faces because we had a great time. You see, when we stay within the law of God, God is teaching us what the blessed life looks like so that we enjoy it and we enjoy Him. And our calling as we go through this series on the Ten Commandments is to learn to love God better and to learn to love His law. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we want to be able to say along with the psalmist, I delight in your law. I love it. And on it I meditate day and night. Because through it we see your character. And we love you. Help us to love you. Help us to love our neighbors. And help us to be those people who seek to honor you above all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.